Gellor's The Way It Is with Sue Nunn. Silence chronicling this book, his meetings with and research on double murderer Malcolm MacArthur. And Mark, thanks so much for joining us. And you're a Kilkenny boy. Hi, Sue. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I am very much a Kilkenny, Kilkenny man, although it's been a while since I've lived there. Yeah, but your family lives live here still, don't they? That's right. Yeah, my 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 mum and my dad live in Kilkenny, and my brother John uh, is a pharmacist in Kilkenny. So still still strong connections to the place, and I'm there pretty often as well. So I haven't uh, haven't lost my Kilkenniness over the years. Very good, and and of course the pharmacy is in Rose Inn Street. People will know O'Connell's Pharmacy in in Rose Inn Street, but. I'm talking to you ab- about your book, A Thread of Violence, and um, it's a fascinating book. I'm nearly through it, Mark. I didn't get right to the end of it, but it's absolutely compelling. For me, I'm of a generation who remembers Malcolm MacArthur and those two brutal murders and the extraordinary kind of upheaval in the Irish state because of the manhunt for him and 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 so on. But I think you tell us in the book that you were three years old and there's a connection um, as to why you wrote this book with your grandparents, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was um, too young when the thing happened to, to remember any of it. Um, as you say, I was three, but the... Um the arrest of, of Malcolm MacArthur quite famously and notoriously happened in a place called Pilot View in, in Dorky. Uh, he was arrested in the home of the Attorney General, Patrick Connolly, who was a, a friend of his who he was staying with, who knew nothing about the the two brutal murders that he committed. But um, my grandparents were neighbours of of Connolly. They lived in the, in the apartment building right next door. So I kind of grew up knowing that this thing had happened in this place that I knew really well. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say it cast a shadow over my childhood or anything like that but I did know about it and I was fascinated by it and I would think about it on the sort of frequent occasions when I would visit them and so yeah there's kind of that you know tenuous family connection there and then in my uh, mid to late 20s and early 30s I did a PhD in Trinity on on uh, the work of John Banville and Banville's book the book of evidence is uh, famously you know a kind of loosely but very recognizably based on MacArthur's crimes and and the kind of political scandal around that. So when I was doing my PhD uh, and and writing about and and thinking about this fictionalized version of MacArthur, that's when he got out of prison and I would see him around Dublin. And that was kind of the real origin, I suppose, of of the book, this uh, strange sort of tension between the fictionalized version of of this person and and the, and the the real MacArthur himself, who was in his own way a kind of mythologized figure. So that's really where the book begins. He's still alive, is he, Mark? <clears throat> he's very much alive, yeah. He's in his late seventies and that's really the the spine of the book really is um finding this guy, uh, you know uh, convincing him to talk to me. Uh and he'd never spoken publicly before about the crimes. He'd um he he'd always maintained a, a kind of strict silence about it. So uh that's really the sort of the center of the book is is my conversations with him over the course of about a year and a half and uh, the sort of strange, tense relationship that developed between us as, as writer and subject. 
And it really it is, is very much it, it is very it, it is absolutely <clears throat> stranger than fiction if ever uh, there was a truer well it's too strange about, you'd have to tone yeah. it down for fiction i think is the and, and banville certainly did that with, mm. with the book of evidence you know um the the character freddie montgomery killed only one person whereas macarthur famously murdered uh bridie gargan and donald dunn and that you... was never of course was never of course charged with the with the murder of Do- donald dunn which is one of the big kind of tragic elements of of this case is that the state never took any action against him for for the murder of of donald dunn because they had him for for the first crime for the murder of Bridie gargan and he was never charged yeah. um, because he was he was going to get life anyway for the first one so there's I mean, a real uh, yeah it was sorry. so so brutal well both of them were brutal you can't say one was more i mean they were both um absolutely and utterly brutal Be, before we mm. we go back to that um, and, and we describe you'll describe what happened. You you just walked up to him in the street, didn't you? And said yeah, you wanted well, I mean, to talk to him. Yeah, that's you know the, the, that's sort of the short version of what happened. Really, um, you know, I as I said uh, previously, like I, I had seen him around Dublin. You know, Dublin is a small city, and uh, someone like MacArthur, who who lives in the city and is kind of uh, certainly for people who remember. Uh, the case and who would be kind of uh, familiar with what he looked like at the time. He's a recognizable figure. Um, and I kind of recognized him certainly because of, because of my PhD work on Banville and reading about the sort of real life inspiration of the case and, and, and following it as he was released and so on. So I did see him around and I would pass him on the street and kind of think, you know, what, what is this man's life like? What, what is it like to live with the weight, the horror of what he did um, what's it like to live in a state of uh, what I imagined would be total kind of social abjection, being a complete outcast, uh, and also quite you know quite recognisable and as I say quite notorious and and well known. So I kind of thought you know a little bit naively, at some point I will stop this man and talk to him. And uh, you know by the time I decided that I was going to write a book about this about this case and about this person. Um, he disappeared because the pandemic happened and, you know, this was sort of early uh, lockdown period, everyone disappeared. Um, and so, it, yeah, it took a while to find him. And there's a whole kind of sequence early on in the book where I'm wandering around the kind of deserted streets of, of Dublin, hoping to to bump into this guy. And I don't know if you've ever tried to accidentally bump into mm-hmm. someone, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not easy. So that's kind of the absurd beginning of the book. But I did... <clears throat> I did eventually find him um, through a combination of kind of just wandering around aimlessly and, you know, a little bit of stalking, to be honest. And uh, yeah, I told him that I was interested in in his story, that I was going to write this book um, and that, you know, it would be a better book and in some ways a more accurate book if he, if he were to... Um, if you were to speak to me for it. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, there was a certain amount of naivety because uh, I didn't realise at the time when I started working on this book and, and, you know, even when I'd convinced my publisher to to publish it, how unlikely it was that he would ever speak to me because I just had no idea that he was this kind of, um, you know, white whale figure for uh, Irish journalists, media people, documentary filmmakers and, and so on that, you know, ever since he was released, uh, you know, 10 or 12 years ago now, People had been trying to get him to to speak on the record, to talk for you know, to talk for documentaries and so on, and books and, and whatever else. Uh, and he had always said no because 
part of the conditions of his release, he's out on what's known as license, which is, you know, when you get life in prison, if and when you do get released, you're released on, on license with very strict conditions in a lot of cases. And in his case, there were a number of conditions, one of which is that you would not speak to uh, or, not, or not approach a member of the media and speak about his crimes. So um, I'm not a member of the media as such. You know, I'm a... Um, an author of myself as an essayist um and so that there was all these kind of gray areas that allowed him to sort of enough wiggle room that he was able to um kind of justify it to himself that that he would speak to me and, and that's how it kind of begun and he kind of played you along to some extent and you questioned yourself to some extent as well Mark, and there's a kind of intriguing discussions that you kind of have with yourself or describe in the book where you're talking about him, whereas the convention has been in the last number of years that you talk about the victims, not about the perpetrator of terrible crimes. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a convention, but within the kind of genre of true crime, which is, you know, uncomfortably, but more or less the the genre that this that this book is operating in, there has kind of developed uh, a sort of a discourse around uh, what's known as centering the narratives of the victims so that you don't just uh, speak about the, the the murderer and the crimes, but you try to reconstruct the uh, the lives and, and the kind of, you know, particular experience of, of the people who, who uh, suffered, you know, uh, be the victims or the, or the families of the victims. Um, and so I kind of go into that in the book and my uh kind of difficulty with that idea and you know there's a lot of kind of moral questioning that happens in the book and mm. you know a big strand of of the book itself there's a tension between myself and macarthur certainly but there's a tension that goes on within myself uh in terms of how i'm telling this story and the morality of telling this story and the way in which i've chosen to tell it but ultimately you know I, and i do think through on the page the sort of difficulty of this question of, of centering the victims narratives and you know there's a couple of kind of levels to this one of which is that the families of Bridie Gargan and, and Donald Don they did in the past speak about Bridie and Donald and they spoke about their own um you know their own experience and, and their own sense of loss over the years and so on uh, and their own sense of injustice in many cases with how the with how the um cases were dealt with but at a certain point they just stop talking and they don't respond to uh requests to speak about uh any of this so you know i i kind of took it, it wasn't that it was a I, I took it as a direct message but when i did reach out to them um and received no response it kind of made me think well what what does this mean you know um and one of the things I think it might mean, or at least for me, it felt like it meant this isn't my story to tell. So I began to question the sort of morality of <clears throat> telling the stories of the victims within the context of a story about MacArthur. So, you know, reconstructing the details of their lives within the larger context of what is, for better or worse, a book about this man who committed these terrible murders. So, yeah, I began to sort of question that and ultimately came down on the side of, you know what, it's not my story to tell. Okay. And it felt in a way like it would have been a kind of a, in a way, a, a form of injustice in itself to use those stories within 
as I say, the, yeah. the larger yeah. context yeah. of McCarthy's Well, And that's story. interesting in itself. But you do tell what happened to these people. And I said I'd come back to that because that's really important. Yeah. And do you think yeah. a lot of people your age um, don't really know? Was was it news to a lot of people your age, <clears throat> Mark? Yeah, it's an interesting one because, you know, I suppose there is kind of an, an age horizon with it. So people who were of age in, in 1982, 1983, almost without exception, remember the case. You know, in detail uh, quite uh, often. Yeah. In detail, yeah. And and would be immediately aware of, of you know, the basic aspects of it and, and who MacArthur is and who Patrick Connolly was and so on. Um, once you start getting below, I would say, so I'm like 43, 44 now. Um, it's a kind of a throw of the dice as to whether people will know about it. Certainly there are people my age and much younger who know everything about this case and will kind of hungrily consume in this sort of way of, you know, true crime being a very popular mm. kind of genre these days. Um, so there were certainly people who knew about it, but uh, as as you get younger and younger, I found that when I was telling people about this, I would have to sort of explain Go back the to the beginning. So of, of will, the story. So will yeah. you do that now? And I suppose a, a warning because it's like it's very, it's <clears throat> very violent. It's very brutal. <clears throat> Starting with, and I'm sorry to, to kind of get you to put all of this in a nutshell, but I mean, <clears throat> who he was briefly and how he came to beat this lovely young nurse over the head into a pulp mm-hmm. just in order to steal a car from her and he, which he didn't he didn't have to do he could have just stolen yeah. the car but just very briefly mm. leading up to to that mark if you would yeah well so macarthur uh malcolm macarthur was uh in the 1970s and, and early 1980s a fairly well known a uh, socialite figure on the sort of social scene in, in Dublin. He came from a, a very well-off, um, not Anglo-Irish, but sort of landed gentry background in, in County Meath um, with sort of, I would say, aristocratic pretensions, you know. Um, and he lived until his late 30s when this when these crimes happened. Uh, he lived off a fairly substantial inheritance uh, that, he, that he got from his, his father when his father died uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, and, you know, he lived well, he didn't, you know, it wasn't a, uh, a lavishly hedonistic lifestyle, but he kind of pursued what you would call a life of the mind. He spent a lot of time in libraries. He was kind of a, he would just, would have described himself as a, as an independent scholar. He liked to sit around in libraries and read, um, uh, scientific journals and, and, you know, academic texts and so on. And yeah, he would have spent a lot of money in, uh, you know, sort of fancy restaurants in Dublin, hung out with a fairly kind of bohemian, uh, sort of high-end bohemian milieu. Um, but the money kind of ran out as inevitably happens with, you know, inheritances that aren't infinite. Um, and when the money ran out, he was living in Tenerife with uh, his partner, uh, Brenda Little, and uh, his son, who was then seven years old. And instead of deciding he was going to get a job or find some other work to kind of uh, shore up his finances, he decided, and this was like in the early 80s, so there w- would have been a lot of um, 
stuff in the news at the time about IRA bank robberies and tiger kidnappings and so on. And he you know, would read about these and he said, you know, I'm a smart guy. I can probably pull off something like this. No one will ever know about it. My finances will be sorted and I can just go back to living a life and of he, he came pleasure. Back, and, and he came freedom. back to Ireland and he like he bought, came back to Ireland, a yeah, hammer, made a, uh, <clears throat> a, a gun that's right, yeah. of sorts and then yeah. went yeah, to Yeah, I mean, the details of it are... That's right. Yeah. So he, you know, it was a very, very hot day in the middle of a heat wave in July in 1982. He went to the Phoenix Park to find a car because he needed a getaway car uh, to pull off this kind of fanciful bank heist that he had in his mind. And he came across Bridie Gargan, um, this 27 year old nurse uh, who was sunbathing. She was essentially just killing some time uh, sunbathing beside her car outside the American ambassador's residence in the Phoenix Park. And he, um, in the in the kind of attempt to steal her car, um, she was bundled into the car. He beat her to death uh, um, with, a, with a hammer, with a lump hammer that he'd bought in a hardware store. Um, she didn't die immediately. He left her um, to kind of suffer from her wounds in, in the car. He abandoned the car in the laneway. Um, and, you know, instead of realizing that he'd, you know, botched this thing, that he'd murdered someone, that he'd um, kind of, you know, made a complete mess of it. He, he kind of returned to his plan. And, and two days later, um, he went to Edenderry in County Offaly, where he had um, arranged to meet with a farmer, with, with Donald Dunn, who was also 27 years old, to buy uh, a shotgun that he had advertised in the, um, in the small ads of a, of a newspaper. And uh, when he arrived in Edenderry, um, he went to test out the shotgun with with Donald Dunn. They went to a, a field on the edge of the town, um, and there was a. They went to test out the gun. There was a struggle over the over the weapon. Um, MacArthur shot him point blank, hid the body under some bushes, stole his car, drove back to Dublin, um, and it's a you know it's a long and crazy just. Uh, wild story really with all these kind of absurd elements to it but in the you know the reason why we're still talking about it today i think is because after a two week long manhunt um very public investigation and kind of a lot of a lot of media interest in it he was arrested in in patrick connolly's home and, and connolly of course was, was the attorney general in hahi's government and, and, a, and a friend of, of, of hahi's and so on and hence the <clears throat> i think how he gave a, a press conference talking about the situation being grotesque unprecedented bizarre mm-hmm. and unbelievable and that's kind of lived on um in the language and then like there mm-hmm. there are actually two other kilkenny uh connections as well i mean did, was it during the time that they were looking for him that he went to an all ireland semi final which featured kilkenny and i'm not sure who else that's right they attended uh, a match in croke park um while while he was staying with connolly connolly was a um was a big hurling fan he had vip tickets macarthur went with him um, Connolly actually was sitting in the VIP box next to the chief guard of superintendent and they talked about the case and Connolly sort of asked him Jesus. have you any and luck the, the, finding the murder of this after, after the murder Mar- this, was, well, this was after the murder but obviously before the arrest before yeah. he was caught like it's it's so extraordinary yeah. and Frank Dunlop from Kilkenny as well of course was Hawhey Hawhey's press secretary and he features right. in a lot of the yeah. photographs at the time as well the book right. is is incredible it's absolutely um absorbing um, mark and i suppose the 
the big question is, and we, you know, how long would it take to go into it? Is is that relationship that you built with this savage murderer and the seemingly kind of um, God, I don't know. Um, sort of, was he emotionless? Was he? I mean, he's a very strange man. He's still alive. I don't know whether when you last saw him, but the book goes through that relationship that you built between the two of you. It's it's very strange and very creepy at times. At one stage, he rings you and your little three-year-old daughter, I think, or your little daughter mm-hmm. has the phone and MacArthur comes up on, on the phone and you have to kind of remove it um, very quickly. But just finally, how how would you characterise that? I mean, I, it's probably impossible yeah, in a couple I mean, it's, of minutes. It, I suppose when you talk about it um, and, and all that stuff is an element of the book, for sure. Um, but it's easy to make it seem as though, um, you know, he the whole relationship is just very creepy and he's a mm. a monstrous character and so on mm. and certainly these things that he did were horrific and and uh in many ways just completely uh inhuman but the real difficulty of the book of course is um the kind of cognitive dissonance of being in a room with this man who's very intelligent mm. very polite very erudite mm. um doesn't seem to be a monster at all and is actually in his own peculiar way um there is some real remorse there about what he did so you know it's it's deeply complicated and there's a lot of kind of uh sort of depth of of shade in the book but you know yeah so to your question about my relationship with him i think that's one of the kind of major naughty elements of the book and it's a book that's just full of ambiguities and and moral complexity and so on but in order to write a book like I've written and to uh, spend time with someone like MacArthur and to, you know, to create a situation where he will talk about his life, you know, truthfully or otherwise, where he's comfortable enough to actually talk about these things, that involves just a lot of time. And, you know, by nature of of what was involved in this book and uh, the timing, you know, during the lockdown and so on, I was a presence in his life and he was a presence in mine. And it was, you know, often very uncomfortable and sometimes quite painful. But the relationship was, yeah, it was it was deeply fraught. Um, but at the same time, he gave me a lot of his time. And so, you know, pe- people often want to know, do, do I still do I sp- do I still speak to him? Mm. Are we still in each other's lives and so on? Mm. Um, you know, I spoke to him after he read the book, right before the book came out. I was just going out. to ask um, you, yeah, what did he think of it? Um, you know, he wasn't happy about it. Uh, and I think he, I always knew he wasn't going to be happy about it. And I always told him that he wasn't going to be happy about it. And in a way, he's sophisticated enough to know that I have my own agenda and it's not his. And that the book could never be a mouthpiece for him or an apologia. But at the same time, uh, I think, you know... I haven't spoken to him since, but he understands that the door is kind of open. You know, it would be a a lot of people want to hear that I have just got my material from this man and that he's a monster and that I'm walking away. And it's really not that straightforward. You know, Um, it's really not it's it's not a friendship or anything close. It could never be anything like that. But there is a certain sense of 
um, you know, in a way that is very different to the sense of responsibility that I have towards the victims' families. It's uh, there is a certain kind of responsibility towards MacArthur as well for having dragged him into the into the light in a certain way. Mm. So it's a very complicated relationship, and of course, the book ultimately is as much about that relationship as it is about yeah. uh, the murders or, or his life, you know. Well, look, Mark, it's absolutely fascinating, completely different, I think, to anything that you have done before. And I wonder what what the next project is. Well, if you've got any ideas, I'd, I'd be all ears. I'd love to hear them. <laughs> I have one, actually, at the moment. Okay. I'll give you a call. The Kilkenny connection would be good. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Mark, really great talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you, and it, it really is amazing. Uh, thanks a million for taking the time to talk. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sue. Take care. Bye bye. That's Mark O'Connell there, author of a story uh, about Malcolm MacArthur. Of course, A Thread of Violence is the name uh, of the book. KCLR's The Way It Is with Sue Nunn.